Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Jeffrey Zorowski, co-host of Bravo's Best New Restaurant and co-founder of Witchcraft. Um, David Gels. Uh, Gels, if you're not familiar with uh, David, he's a, a remarkable friend and a remarkable human being who, uh, when he's not busy eating my sandwiches, he's uh, writing for the New York Times, uh, reporter covering Wall Street in the deal book section, and uh, somehow found some time to uh, write this amazing book, Mindful Work, uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Um, he's joined here with his family. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, um, David has been uh, a, mindful, a mindful practitioner for over 15 years. Um, this book charts the, the remarkable rise of, of mindfulness, yoga, and meditation in the workplace. Uh, so let's welcome him here tonight, and uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, so. Uh, Let's just start off, just, just first maybe give everyone a little bit of a primer. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's read an introduction from the, from the book first. Sure. Uh, just to give everyone a sense of sort of how you're approaching the topic. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about what mindfulness is. Well, it's really exciting to be reading at Apple because, in fact, one of the most interesting anecdotes I uncovered while reporting this book is about Steve Jobs himself. And so I use that as the introduction, and I'll just read the first couple pages. Saturday, June 6, 1981. It's a steamy summer day in Boston. At the Park Plaza, a grand hotel just off the common, a nerdy crowd packs a high-ceiling ballroom, stirring under the chandeliers, waiting for a man it reveres as a visionary. The thronging masses, almost all young men, are superfans of the personal computer, techies at the vanguard of a revolution that would soon upend the way we live and work. The guest of honor is Steve Jobs. Just 26 years old, Jobs has rocketed to international stardom in recent months. Apple, the company he has co-founded and runs, has just gone public. His flagship product, the Apple III, is revolutionizing how people use technology. He is already worth $250 million. Jobs is in Boston to address AppleFest, an event for devotees of his products organized by an 18-year-old whiz kid named Jonathan Rottenberg. AppleFest was put together without Jobs' knowledge, and he agreed to come only at the last minute, perhaps sensing some kinship with the young, ambitious organizer. Lean and lanky, Jobs sports a full beard and bushy black hair that falls over his ears and past his collar. He could be a folk singer, were it not for the dark suit, blue dress shirt, and wide-framed glasses. In the heat, he has removed his jacket, slinging it over his left shoulder. After lunch, Jobs and Rottenberg walk back to the park plaza. All day, hundreds of fans have been tinkering with the newest Apple machines, swapping notes and dreaming about how computers might change their lives and the world in the years to come. Now they're assembled in the ballroom, waiting to hear from the man who has made their futuristic dreams begin to come true. Despite his youth, Jobs looks cool and collected. A contented grin graces his face, perhaps understandable for a multimillionaire. Yet with nearly 1,000 of his most loyal customers in the audience, even Jobs must feel some nerves. These are his early adopters, the hardcore users he's counting on to sustain his company in the coming years. Backstage, 10 minutes before the keynote is set to begin, the teenage Rottenberg is also a ball of nerves. He and Jobs make some small talk, but both are anxious for the speech to begin. Then Jobs says, Jonathan, would you excuse me for a minute? Rottenberg turns around and Jobs is gone. Is it stage fright? Has he already gone 
just gone to the bathroom, or is Jobs already known for his enigmatic behavior playing one of his mind games? Long minutes drag out. The crowd begins to stir, restless in the heat. It is now four minutes before the speech is to start and Rottenberg begins to panic. If Jobs gets cold feet and bails, Applefest will be a disaster. Rottenberg will be humiliated. The host paces backstage, searching for his speaker just moments before the main event. A few more minutes tick by. Jobs is nowhere to be found. Then, finally, in a corner of the jumbled backstage area, Rottenberg spots him. Jobs is sitting on the floor. His legs are crossed, his posture erect. He faces the wall, unmoving. At the precipice of one of the biggest moments of his career, Jobs had paused to meditate. As Rottenberg looks on, Jobs enjoys another few moments of stillness amid the backstage tumult. Finally, slowly, Jobs gets up, smiles at Rottenberg, and makes his way to the stage. He emerges from behind the curtain and into the spotlight. The crowd roars. Steve Jobs' ability to be calm and concentrated in the midst of chaos was one of the things that made him such a great leader. Though he was far from perfect, Jobs' focus, insight, and creativity set him and Apple apart from the competition. And in that moment backstage, Jobs wasn't praying to any divinity, visualizing any mandala, or reciting some mantra. He was in all likelihood doing what he had been trained to do by his meditation instructors, simply paying close attention to the sensations of his breath, the physicality of his body, and observing the thoughts in his mind non-judgmentally. He was taking a few moments to be mindful. Jobs was America's first mainstream meditating CEO, a disciple of the Zen Buddhist tradition, and a keen student of Eastern philosophy. But he mostly practiced in isolation, studying intensely with a Japanese teacher, sharing his interest with a, close, with a few close friends, but rarely bringing his meditation into the office. Today, however, mindfulness is everywhere, almost as ubiquitous and transformative as Apple products themselves. So that's how the book starts. Uh, that's a, a kind of dynamic opening, right? I mean, the, the, the CEO of all CEOs, the entrepreneur of all entrepreneurs, uh, back at the root of the organization is, is practicing mindfulness. Um, would you, is there other, uh, are there other histories of, of uh, later on anecdotes of, of his using mindfulness to sort of create great products, to lead great teams? Yeah, I unfortunately didn't have room for all of them. Some of them are included in Walter Isaacson's biography and some of them are, are the new in the new Steve Jobs book, but he continued to refer to his experiences in meditation and indeed his travels through India where he went as a young man. And these were pivotal moments. In his Stanford address, he wrote a great commencement address in Stanford, he refers to some of them as well. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take a step back. So, so just in general, mindfulness is having a moment right now, right? Everyone's talking about meditation. Everyone's right. practicing yoga. Right. We know the rise of the numbers of people, myself included, and, and you know, you've, been, you've been doing it for a lot longer. Um, what, uh, just for everyone, what is mindfulness? Do we have to shave our heads? Do we have to wear robes? Don't have to shave your heads. Okay. Don't have to wear robes. Don't have to cross your legs and levitate like <laughs> Michael Keaton and Birdman. Simply defined, mindfulness is paying attention in the present moment, on purpose, in a particular way, and non-judgmentally. And I know that's a mouthful, but if you break it down, it's really about being right here, right now, not getting lost in thoughts about the future, not dwelling and beating ourselves up about the past, and also not wishing things to be other than the way they are right now. So none of this kind of incessant beating ourselves up and wishing things would be just a little different and maybe then we'd be happy. So that's mindfulness. And meditation 
is reliably one of the best ways to cultivate this state of mindfulness. So that's how I like to describe the relationship between meditation and mindfulness. Got it. And uh, what other practices of mindfulness are, are popular, uh, you know, that people don't really think of uh, as mindful, but actually are? Well, there's a lot of ways to be mindful. And, and being mindful is kind of often this state of embodying that, those qualities that I referred to earlier. So a, a kind of calm, a contentedness, being equanimous in the midst of a really tough situation. People are starting to realize that this is valuable skill set to have in the workplace. So other ways to practice besides you know, formal meditation practice, there's all sorts of ones. And I, I won't get into how to do them all here, but there's walking mindfulness, there's things like the body scan, there's even techniques of practicing mindful eating when you're enjoying a witchcraft sandwich, for example. <laughs> so there's a whole range, and, and a lot of people are now bringing together things like yoga and mindfulness and introducing mindful stretching programs, even to blue-collar factory workers in northern Vermont, for example. Interesting. So, so just as uh, yoga on its own is not necessarily mindfulness, it's, it's this practice of intention, this being present while doing these other activities. Is, is, I think that's, that's right. There, yeah. There's a whole range of complementary practices and there's a whole range of meditative practices. I mean, there's transcendental meditation, there's mantra meditation. So mindfulness meditation is a specific, specific kind of tool in the toolkit that is designed to cultivate this state of mindfulness. Great. And that's a, that's a pretty clear, clear definition. Now, let's talk a little bit about the purpose of the book in terms of, you mentioned factory workers, right? You mentioned uh, in the book, you know, Amazing companies we wouldn't think wouldn't think about using using mindfulness. Um, how do you think that the the what are the origin of, of how those CEOs or those cultures of those companies uh, came to practice and what do they think the benefit of it is? Mindfulness is going mainstream these days for a couple reasons. On the one hand, I think there's been essentially kind of a broader liberalization of workplace culture. And some of that probably has to do with the increased blending of our work lives and our personal lives. You know, we're taking more of work home, but I think people are bringing more of themselves into the office as well. So I think the doors probably open a little. Another factor has been the incredible volume of research that's been done in recent decades that shows the efficacy of mindfulness and the efficacy of meditation. We now know that this isn't just psychosomatic, but in fact meditation is changing our brains and our bodies in meaningful, quantifiable ways as well. So the scientists can say, hey, your employees say this makes them feel better, and guess what? We've got the data to back it up. Right. Let's actually go into that a little bit because that's one of the things I think, you know, you could tell people do something for their health, do something because it's going to make them feel better. But when you, when you sort of tell people that it's going to have this result or has proved to have this result, uh, I feel like the adoption goes much faster. So maybe, maybe you could just kind of give people a sense of, of what exactly um, are some of the results that, that we've seen, uh, whether it's on the large scale at a corporation or for individuals. I'll use the example of Aetna. Aetna is a big health insurance company up in Hartford, Connecticut. And about 10 years ago, the CEO, the guy who's now CEO, he almost died in a really severe skiing accident. Nothing was working when he tried to recover. Not surgeries, not Oxycontin, not fentanyl. So he started turning to uh, complementary practices. He started yoga and then meditation, mindfulness meditation. And all of a sudden, he had that bounce back in his step. He was able to return to work. The pain didn't disappear, but he was suffering less. He was able to manage his pain more effectively. A few years go by, he becomes CEO, and he says, listen, this worked for me. Let me start piloting a program with my employees. But he's a man of science, so he does something extraordinary. He turns to Duke University and says, I want you to measure the results of these programs. 
So they roll it out to hundreds and thousands of employees, and what do they find? Not only are employees saying that they're less stressed, that their sleep quality is improved, but the data shows it. Their heart rate variability had gone down. The cortisol levels in their bloodstream, cortisol is a stress hormone, it had gone down as well. It's probably one of the biggest indicators of heart disease, uh, cancer, inflammation, all this stuff, right? It's stress levels in your body, right? Precisely. Okay. So we can actually see that the physical indicators of stress had plummeted. And this is just one example of all these studies that are out there. Neuroscience has shown that in the minds of meditators, the gray matter in our prefrontal cortex, that's the area of our brain that's evolutionary, the, most, the, the newest part, it gets thicker. They show that the amygdala, an almond-shaped region in the center of our brain that kind of controls our fight or flight reaction, our stress reaction, it becomes less reactive in the brains of meditators. So th that's just the tip of the iceberg, but it goes to show, and it's, it's another reason that CEOs at Google, BlackRock, Aetna, Ford, Intel, Adobe, these are just some of the companies that are looking at the data saying, hey, I see that quantifiably, my employees might be a little less stressed, a little healthier, why don't we try it out? Gotcha. Uh, just to ask the practical question, how are, how are profits at companies uh, that, that practice mindfulness compared to, to others? Or not necessarily compared to others, but are they, do they suffer? I think you had a quote today, saw uh, no one ever went to, became a hobo uh, practicing mindfulness. So has any, any company gone bankrupt when they practice mindfulness? I, I have yet to see that. But, but I also think it's important not to overstate the potential benefits. I mean, mindfulness is no panacea. Just because you introduce meditation in the workplace, it's not gonna make a bad boss behave better. It's not gonna give you that raise right away. And it's probably not gonna turn around a struggling company. But I, I'll, I'll refer again to Aetna. After a full year of rolling out these programs at Aetna, 13,000 now of 50,000 employees at Aetna have done either a yoga or a mindfulness program. The CEO was reviewing the full year fiscal results for 2012, and he noticed something extraordinary. Healthcare costs on a per employee basis had gone down 7.3%. This is in the wake of the financial crisis and on a per employee basis. So it's not like they fired a bunch of people in healthcare costs. Right, right. At a company like Aetna, that meant $9 million straight to the bottom line. And I asked Mark, I was like, what else were you doing differently? And that was it. The only big thing they had changed was introducing these complementary health practices. And guess what? The employee base seemed to get healthier. Uh, has there been a growth? There's there going to be a growth in the, in, in the adoption in the company since, since 2012? Or? They continue to roll it out. So that 13,000 number is the total number of employees that have done it up to this point. And that's you know, nearly a third of the company now. It's just amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and let's just take one step back and remind everyone that mindfulness is not a goal-oriented practice, right? We're not, we're not looking for goals here, right? We're not, like, this is, the, this is the, one of the interesting things about the practice, right? Is it's a hard balance between do I do this because I do something good or I do, I do it intrinsically for itself? What's your, what's your feeling on, on that? It's a great kind of contradiction, and it's right at the heart of some of the tensions of this book. Why is a contemplative practice showing up in capitalistic corporate America? Right. Why are we doing something for ourself when oftentimes people report that the real experience of mindfulness is kind of feelings of goodwill and compassion for others. So there are all sorts of apparent contradictions. When it comes to being goal-oriented though, I don't think it's an unfair goal to become less stressed. <laughs> I, I would agree with I, you. I don't think it's, it's, it's somehow ignoble to want to you know, be a little in a little less pain and take a little better care of yourself and other people. Okay, fair enough. Now, now do I think 
people are maybe missing the point a little if they say, I'm going to become mindful and suddenly my profits are going to go off the charts. Yeah, I think we should probably keep talking about what we're actually doing here. Right, right. But I don't think it's unfair to, to come into it with some healthy and reasonable expectations that if you practice, if you stick with it, your, your stress levels might start to come down as a starting point. Have you encountered any companies both in the book or outside in research uh, that are mani uh, creating mandatory mindful practice? I have yet to see a mindful kind of regimen be instituted at the insistence of the CEO who says everyone must meditate. Like morning meeting is first starts with 10 minutes of mindfulness. Well, you, you raise a really interesting point. Some companies are starting meetings with a moment of silence. And I don't, again, I think if you're able to do that in a way that's kind of free from dogma and not expecting people to necessarily capital M meditate, there could be some value there. What, what I haven't seen and what I'd again kind of caution against are, mind, are mandatory meditation sessions. I think it's a pretty slippery slope to kind of, you know, all of a sudden being, you know, near cult status at that Ag point. Agreed. Um, I just actually just came from a meeting at, at Witchcraft and uh, we had a meeting of our managers and our managers are coming off a day of stressful work in the restaurant, you know, feeding a lot of hungry people who are craving their sandwiches. Uh, and uh, the first thing I asked them to do is just take, take a breath. Um, and just take a deep breath, inhale, exhale, couple breaths. And uh, what was interesting is one of our managers resisted. And as I'm sure you know, and, and this is one of the things I think that needs to get across is sometimes it needs a little push, right? You say, let's just take a couple breaths and then the practice takes on its own uh, happiness, right? So the first time you wanna meditate, you may not feel like you wanna do it, but then the, the effects of doing it cause you to wanna do it again. Is that what? correct? The 10,000th time you try to meditate, you still may not still want to do it. <laughs> but hopefully uh, you've, you've started to see some of the positive results. I just want to ask you yeah, there, sure. two questions. Why was it? What, what You've been introducing or starting meetings with a moment of silence for a while now. This a wasn't breath. the first time. With a breath. Yeah. What have you noticed the results to be? What, has the tenor of a meeting changed? Do people kind of you know, shift, uh, shift in their perspective? And second, how did this person resist? What did they say? Because that's very interesting to me, how people actually are, go public with their dissent, if you will. I love how the reporter just turned the moderation onto me. <laughs> um, the, uh, no, I'd say the two things is we, we, we uh, start meetings with, or with just a couple deep breaths, just as, a, as you would any practice, right? Uh, coming up here on stage or anything, uh, great sports athletes uh, do this all the time, and it's not called uh, mindfulness as much as it is just, you know, your little breathing technique. Um, we do that, and we change the tenor by anytime there becomes an escalation or some sort of heated interaction, we just say, hey, hold on, let's just take a calm, let's calm for a second, let's take a breath. Um, and that just calms the, the, the edge a little bit. The other, th the other thing that we've noticed is, well, personally, as the leader of a lot of these meetings, I was, you know, a stressed out, um, uptight, uh, argumentative boss, uh, and, and oftentimes try to control the, the dialogue a little too much. And now the meetings are much more, or getting there, are much more, you know, flowy, right? Uh, it's it's all right to have different. That's a opinions. technical term, right? Flowy. flowy yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're, yeah, if you were, if you, in the mindful world, it would be in, in witchcraft, not necessarily so. Um, and then the other thing is resistance was just like a shake of the head, a, a tensing of the body, and then you know just doing the practice, just saying, hey, just take a deep breath. All of a sudden, releases that and relaxes, relaxes that 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 tension. Right. Um, and I find it helpful. I mean, in, in 
if I had my druthers, uh, and it would be, it's something we're working on is doing a study with one of our stores in which everyone meditates and actually correlating it to uh, turnover rate, correlating, which is a huge problem in the restaurant industry, correlating it to tardiness or absenteeism, um, correlating it to just general happiness of the employees. Uh, and then finally, I mean, of course, sales and profitability, happiness of the customers, less chaos, less, less anxiety in the store. Um, right, which is which is common. I mean, you go out to lunch in New York City, and it's nothing but a, a, an anxious experience. Not it's not a calm one. Right. This might be a good moment for me to stress that there are all sorts of different ways that mindfulness, if you will, is showing up in small businesses, medium-sized enterprises, and big corporations. I mean, it's somewhere like Google. They have a very robust and almost academic program called Search Inside Yourself, which is a 10-week rigorous course with homework, and you study about emotional intelligence, and you learn how to meditate, and you learn about the neuroscience. At other companies like Intel and Adobe, which I mentioned, they're much more kind of practice-oriented. It's essentially been a ground-up snowball effect where some people started to meditate. They eventually got buy-in from HR, and now there's essentially deep, you know, kind of committed practice groups that are meditating on the job. And then it's somewhere like Goldman Sachs. They've introduced mindfulness and meditation programs to their uh, traders and investment bankers looking, again, to improve focus. Because, you know, a, the belief is that if you can maybe improve your focus, if you can stay on task for a greater duration of time, maybe you'll be, again, a little less stressed and a bit better performer at the office. Well, Ray Dalio is, is a... You know, famous example of a, of a, sure. a, a transcendental. But he runs a big hedge fund. He runs one of the biggest hedge funds. It's amazing that, that companies like Goldman Sachs and others didn't, you know, are looking to that as a model. It takes takes a long time to to sort of nudge, right? Right, and that's one of the things we're seeing right now. Even just in the last few years, the cultural acceptance of mindfulness and meditation has just gone exponential. Right. I mean, cover of Time Magazine. Uh, 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper is like going on meditation retreat. And so what was once, even just a few years ago, and certainly when Steve Jobs was out there doing it, a really fringe, almost radical practice is now, if not squarely part of the mainstream, certainly you know, more welcome at, as part of the conversation. Are you seeing companies where, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of... Um connotation or the, the stigma of like, hey, I'm going to take 15 minutes to go meditate is no longer uh, looked down upon. It's, it's sort of like, hey, the, go, go right ahead. We're going to be more productive. I, there are companies where that maybe kind of cultural loosening up has happened and really taken root. There are other companies where it probably hasn't. I mean, even today, I won't name the company, but I was at a, an office on Third Avenue in Midtown, and they were great. They're really interested. They bought a bunch of books. I came <laughs> in. I met with the entire company. And it was, if not hostile, people were resistant. People were not buying it. My rattling off of the neuroscientific studies didn't help. My illusions about potential better performance and bottom line didn't sway them. They just, it, the culture at this company probably wasn't going to be receptive. And so I, I, I emphasize to people, I'm not sitting up here telling everyone to meditate and telling every company to start a meditation program. It's a really individualistic thing. There's some companies where it's going to work, where it's going to make sense, and others where maybe it's just not right. So let's, let's address that for a second. What's the fear? Like, what are you experiencing as the fear in your discussions with companies who aren't or the initial fears that companies had before it became widespread? Right. Because 
it would seem to me this is, this is not something that's going to hurt you in any way, shape, or form, right? There's a whole range of criticisms. Everything from this is just religion in disguise because it's meditation to if I meditate, I'm going to get weak, I'm going to lose my edge, and in fact, my, perf my performance isn't going to go up, it's going to go down. Right. Uh, to, you know, simply association with, again, something that is potentially perceived as new age or even effeminate. And in a, some, essentially, you know, hardcore Wall Street environments, that's just not going to fly. Yeah, I don't mean to... So the, the criticisms are out there, and I don't dismiss them offhand. Sure. People have their perspectives, and got to honor that. Um, so you've been meditating for 15 years. I have. And uh, you've practiced different types in your, in, your, in your career? So 15 years ago, I discovered the same thing Steve Jobs was practicing. I began getting interested in Zen meditation. I went off, I started uh, practicing Zen Buddhism. I then went to India and was exposed to a whole range of meditative traditions. I spent my 21st birthday living in a Buddhist monastery. I took the second <laughs> No drinking half on your 21st, huh? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, drinking the Kool-Aid, perhaps. <laughs> um, went down to southern India, studied meditation there, went up to Nepal and lived with Tibetan monks. So. I had kind of a, a wide palette presented to me. This is almost 15 years ago now. Zeroed in on mindfulness meditation. It was the thing that I responded to most. And coincidentally, over the last 10, 15 years, it's what's gone most mainstream. So when I started seeing mindfulness show up in the workplace, I was both intrigued as a journalist who recognized, hey, this is a good story. There's all sorts of interesting themes to unpack here. And also, oh, this is something I'm deeply familiar with and committed to in a way. And so I, I come with a certain perspective that allowed me to really, you know, report this out in a deep and exciting way. Is that, would you say that was the original origin of, of the desire for the book was it was such a personal story to you uh, and that you thought it would, needed, to be, needed to be shared uh, in a more popular way than just, hey, let's go put this on the shelf of the, I mean, this is the business section, right? This is your reporter on DealBook. This is not uh, hidden in some uh, spiritual bookstore, correct? And when I started writing and sent my editor the first few draft chapters, he said, he's a good reporting, but where are you? I hadn't put myself into the book. And so my editor, who was great, he just emphasized over and over again, you got to include your personal story. People need to know who it is that's telling them about this. And it was, it was, it was tough for me. I mean, it was, I'm vulnerable at points in the book. But I think it ultimately made a much more honest uh, piece of reporting in the end. So do you practice mindfulness daily? Uh, Daily, I can't uh, say that I absolutely wake up every morning and hit the meditation cushion. I wish I did sometimes, but with a very busy job and a very active one-year-old daughter at home, it's not always practical. She's back there. I don't know if she's... Uh, um, and I think that's important to acknowledge. To be mindful, you don't have to sit with your legs crossed on a cushion for 30 minutes every day. I think establishing a practice is really useful and grounding yourself through a course like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a really common offering that's tons of places to do it here. It's a great way to get familiar with the practice, but once you have it under your belt, there's all sorts of ways to just check in, take a breath before a meeting, and just pause and remember to be mindful. Small moments, short moments, many times throughout the day, is just as effective, a lot of meditation teachers posit, as a long 30-minute sit with sure. your legs crossed. Yeah, I, uh, I, I got out of the practice of checking my email religiously in cab rides, and now I just buckle up and I, I breathe. It's a way of taking time that you wouldn't necessarily find throughout the day. 
And the velocity of our days is so relentless. I mean, we go, 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 especially in this town. And so finding brief ways to just interrupt, check in with ourselves, like notice what's happening around us, it's not only valuable in cultivating less stress, but a lot of people find it, frankly, enjoyable. Right, absolutely. Are you going to uh, implement a, a mindfulness practice at the Times? Well, there have been some initial discussions, but this gets to what I describe in the book as one of the great tensions right now. Demand for this practice is vastly outstripping supply. So I'm not a meditation teacher, and I wouldn't pretend to be able to guide a lot of people through what's ultimately a very personal and, and kind of self-reflective practice. For that, I would really look to people who have been doing this for a long time and are qualified meditation instructors. But there aren't enough of them right now. Sure. So into that void is slipping like mindfulness apps, companies that are offering mindfulness training that I frankly don't think probably okay. <laughs> uh, have the qualifications to do so. We won't name names. No, snake oil salesmen and hucksters. And so it's an interesting and dynamic time. So I always suggest to people, if you're interested in bringing this to your own work workplace, find a qualified teacher. And they are out there. Where, would you, where do you look? I mean, Google's one thing, but like, where do you look? Is there a specific resource of, of teachers? Google has expanded its program. It's called the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And then there are small, they're not big organizations right now, but there are small individual teachers in every city, basically, people who really have done the work. But it takes some homework to find them. Okay. And the apps you're not in love with, huh? I think there's some good apps. Headspace is a great one. Uh, but there are, there are some ones that are probably of dubious provenance as well. <laughs> okay. Um, we... Uh... I think we're getting very close to questions. Um, so just to, to drill in, if you had to give, um, you know, sort of wrap up on the book in general, like what do you hope people in this room, people who read it take away, what do you hope CEO sitting somewhere, you know, takes away from this and says, wow, I'm, I'm, this, changed, this changed the way I think. What do you, what is the, what's the punchline? I had to get in touch with my own intentions when I started writing this book. Because, I mean, on the one hand, I was like, ooh, I get to be a famous author, and I get to be on stage with Jeffrey Zorowski at the Apple Store. Wonderful. That's not the reason I wrote this book, though. Right. My hope was that individuals, if they're interested in finding techniques to reduce their stress, to maybe become more productive, and are on the fence about, is this something for me, that they would be... Uh, you know, inspired in a way to recognize that it's okay. Lots of people in all industries are doing this and they're doing it in the workplace. And the message to CEOs and HR managers, I hope was, sim was similar, is that you don't have to like stay in the closet. You don't have to be a closet meditator anymore. <laughs> it's okay, the water's fine. Are we gonna be uh, having uh, equal rights in, uh, for meditators soon? Well, I, th <laughs> I think we're well on the way. I mean, you, the, the, the embrace by companies from General Mills to Ford to it's Patagonia amazing. would suggest that that's already starting to happen. And I hope there's enough examples and data and anecdotes in this book that if a CEO or HR manager says, well, I don't know if this is really right for me, this hopefully will put them over the edge and make them take that step and offer services for their employees that maybe are going to improve the quality of life, the quality of health for their workers. That'd be a good thing. That's great. Um, I have one follow-up on that because mm. I wrestle with this, mm. which is, you know, mindfulness as a private practice right. is something that, okay, you get stressed at work, you're mindful at home, that's how you deal. Mm. Um, do you feel like uh, many of the, or any of the um, CEOs 
or the HR managers felt a responsibility as a community uh, for their employees to help them cope with some of the stress that's also caused by the work that they do. Is One of the most interesting things I saw was especially in the long-time meditators, the people that began practicing mindfulness and stuck with it for years. Mark Bertolini is one of them. Eileen Fisher, who runs a sure. clothing company, she's another one. At a certain point, they started realizing that it wasn't just about themselves. It wasn't just about making themselves less stressed and more productive. They had the opportunity to positively impact the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of employees and maybe even thousands of other constituents like their customers. So they started making more compassionate, environmentally friendly, and socially responsible decisions. And that's just an extraordinary evolution, I think. That's amazing. By the way, look at, look at, look at the crowd you've attracted Hi, talking about mindfulness. Yeah, I think, um, we've got, I think we're gonna move to the Q&A point. Yeah. Is this right? Yeah, Good time. so let's open it up. Let's have a broader discussion. Hi, my name is Candace. I Hi, am Candace. a current PhD student. My research is in mindfulness and deviant Terrific. work behaviors. Terrific. Um, one of the things that I do want to do once I get out is I want to consult companies in mindfulness training. And you touched on this very briefly, but I was curious as to have you seen any other programs outside of MBSR and Search Inside Yourself program that c was created specifically for teaching mindfulness in the workplace? Sure, so Aetna, the insurer that I mentioned, and they've rolled this out to thousands of people, they use an online training program called eMindful, and they've done some similar work. Um, there's a group called Wisdom Labs in San Francisco that's starting to do tailor-made mindfulness training for corporations. And the, I mean, there's a list of other ones out there. I include some resources in the back of my book, which is on iBooks, I should add, uh, available for purchase. So the, the, the resources out there, and if you want to follow up, I can give you kind of a more comprehensive list. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. All right, so uh, I'm a psychologist, Ellen McGrath, and I read this book and I felt so good about what you wrote because I felt like it opened a door to neuropsych and all of the new brain imaging techniques that have come up, which are showing irrefutably that this works for some people at least. And it's really a useful tool. So my question is really about what's next for you. I'm really curious about, yes, <laughs> I'm really curious about maybe what you're doing from the book yeah. and then what you're going to do next with it. Well, that's a wonderful and personal question. I mean, I am fortunate and to be happily employed by the New York Times company. So my day job is, is an awesome one that I worked a long time to get. But I will be honest with you, the reception I've got, and thank you so much for reading the book, has caused me um, some self-reflection. And I'm recognizing that there's, a, there's the, the opportunity to talk about this in a way that seems to be appealing to a mainstream audience. It's, uh, it's a unique opportunity. And people send me thank you notes for writing this book, which is amazing. And I don't get those same kind of heartfelt thank you notes when I write a story about mergers and acquisitions, for example. <laughs> Except for maybe some of the companies who so are I'm stock thinking, price. I'm thinking about up. it, but thank you for the question. It's, it's the right one to ask. I'm asking myself. Actually, can I follow up on that for a second? Yeah, so, of course. Um, the, do you feel, I, I'm going to push you on this because I think there's a responsibility a little bit mm. without being preachy to continue the messaging mm -hmm. uh, even more vocally. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily because of uh, it's right or wrong, but as much as it is, it's another tool 
that deals with a big issue that goes it's a hidden cost in our society around Absolutely. stress at the workplace. The number of hours people have worked, yeah. all the disease that's caused behind it. So yeah. um, I'm just going to challenge you to say, you know, you should try to maybe create a column on this, uh, if, you know, using, using that great job that you have to create a little bit of a louder voice. Uh, I, I, I hope my editor, Dean Bacay, is listening. I will, I will call. <laughs> I'll, I'll, right. Oh, I was, I was just curious. Um, if you, I mean, I wonder if some of the resistance in some of those companies is from the fact that you were talking about, like Eileen Fisher, if this groundswell of mindfulness might lead to more environmentally and socially conscious workplaces and people are maybe afraid of change and yeah. I, th I think that's part of it and I spoke with executives at some companies that alluded to that they, they weren't ready to have people starting to be self-reflective that's not the business they're in and again that's when I said there's a whole spectrum of companies out there and this is going to work in some and it's probably not going to work in others and I try to be respectful of that now would I love kind of a company that's ravaging the earth and polluting to get mindfulness and suddenly clean up their act? Absolutely. But again, important not to overstate or oversell the potential benefits here. This is a great practice that can help reduce individual stress levels, can maybe help foster better teamwork, but I don't think mindfulness alone is gonna change our whole capitalistic economic system. At least not yet. We're hoping. Uh, so, um, I mean, listen, uh, I think it's wonderful. I think everyone sees the value of what you've put out there. I encourage everyone to read the book, buy it on iBooks, um, right? Uh, but at a, at a minimum, um, you know, I think your lesson learned from writing this book, what would be, what did you learn from writing this book more than anything else? Gets back to your question. Gets back to that question about what are people really wanting to hear about and really wanting to talk about? And the big lesson for me was that there's this appetite at big companies, at small businesses, and everywhere in between. And it's not just at the workplace, it's at home as well. Everyone who I talked to and included a work story in this book had a personal story as well right. about how these practices change their relationship with themselves, their friendships, and their relationships with their family, their, their marriages. Right. And there is a huge appetite for people to start talking about these things more openly and it's heartening to me that the conversation is starting to happen in public in places like this. Yeah, it's amazing, right? As a colleague and as a friend, I can tell you that the effects of mindfulness on you are great. Uh, you're one of the most soulful people I know, and uh, I really appreciate you putting this out there, and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thanks for chatting, and thank you for everyone for listening. Really appreciate it.